Welcome to the ACG podcast, AC Gleason podcast, AA Run podcast, whatever you want to call it. Um, on the uh, App Store or whatever the the Apple iTunes Store podcast app, whatever. It's just going to say ACG, I think. <laughs> um, my little black and white icon. This is me relaunching uh, from the old AK-47 podcast, which I need to reiterate again, was not a reference to guns. It was me, my name, Aaron, the A, and Kyle, who's my first guest on my new podcast, but he is not a co-host anymore. It's just going to be me. Um, hi, Kyle. Hi there. So you have I the- been demoted? We didn't talk about this. <laughs> you were the K and the old AK, and then we were supposed to do 47 podcasts a year. Dad died within like the first year. Um, and it was very intermittent after that. I, I had been told pretty much from the get-go that our name was probably going to get us into trouble eventually. And without going into details, it kind of finally did. So, and I think... How okay? Well, honestly, tell me how much did you enjoy podcasting? Well, I did enjoy it. Um, I had fun with it, but um, there just came a point where it's like I just got all these other immediate things in my life that I'm prioritizing over this. So that was kind of the issue. Well, and that kind of happened to me a lot too. And that's sort of what we're going to talk about today a little bit. Sort of where life has brought the two of us during the pandemic i don't do you even remember what the last episode of the old podcast we recorded was i think it was um i interviewed richard porter on just like being an apologist without having to spend billions of dollars to get a degree at talbot or wherever people go to do that so yeah for the record talbot does not actually cost billions of dollars but it is expensive (laughs) yep um Okay, really? I thought because I feel like the last episode. Oh, it's because we started. This is why my memory is screwed up on this. Because we started another podcast that we never did anything with, because we were going to be super serious about it. And maybe we will do this at some point. Um, but the Aaron watches Avatar podcast, I think, is the actual last thing we recorded. We just never. Oh yeah. Did anything with it. The premise of that was supposed to be because there's kind of this little cottage industry of podcasts um, about people rewatching old shows. Uh, And uh, like one of my favorites is in research of where uh, Blake Smith, who's probably going to be a, one of my next guests on this new podcast. Um, Blake Smith and I can't Jeb card, I think is the name of the archeologist. They rewatch old episodes of in search of from the seventies and talk about <laughs> like how accurate they are. And usually they're very inaccurate. They're also very, they're both very skeptical in general. So they're not like theists or stuff, but in any case, that's one of my favorites. There's Rachel watches star Trek. And then there's, um, there's the HP Lovecraft literary podcast, which is not like old shows, but it's just, you know, 
horror stories and stuff that they read and discuss. There's a whole bunch of them. And so we were going to do Aaron watches avatar. Cause you've seen avatar and I have not. And um, it was kind of fun, but I think one reason why it probably wasn't going to work is that I was watching avatar for the first time and you don't know that much about avatar. So even though you've seen it, it's not like we could even really discuss because was Dave Filoni, was he one of the big guys behind that show or am I mistaken? I don't recall. I mean, Dave Filoni is definitely the star Wars guy, but it was Kanitsko and DiMartino. Those are the two guys that are like the creators of the whole avatar uh universe if feloni was involved i don't know if he directed any episodes um but yeah there was a point where not only did i see avatar multiple times but i did watch um i did have dvds that had episodes with commentaries so i did listen to those but that was years ago so i probably should have gone through that again um and you hear some weird stuff in the background it's the new cat um oh yeah you got the new cat that kind of sorry what were you saying well there is some background stuff that i did learn about it too like i saw some background creation of stuff with avatar on how they use real martial artists and how animators could sort of uh look at real martial arts and see how to animate the different fighting styles and all that but um yeah it's, it's definitely something um i feel like with those ones that were recorded that we never published were probably just a first draft maybe we could have done better if we did them again and if i wasn't so lazy i any listeners who think that that even sounds like something that you would like um go ahead and and let us know and maybe we can start working on that someday but uh yeah i think both of us were like this is fun but i don't know if this is really gonna work um in any case so life where has life taken us since we killed the podcast so i mentioned a new cat uh anyone who's been paying attention which i really doubt that there will probably be that many listeners from the old show um would probably say that that would be four cats for me now but that's not really what happened so the timeline is kind of messed up in my head but about two two and a half years ago uh my now ex-wife left me and i'm not going to go into gross details about that um just because you know my ex-wife is very shy and uh in any case um i just in quick summary i did not want our marriage to end um and without making her sound like a total monster uh it really was basically her initiative and i don't really think we should have gotten divorced but um i think there's just a whole bunch of reasons why it happened uh things that i did wrong things that she did wrong i think it's pretty typical um actually of a lot of american divorces and uh to be completely honest not all that interesting um it might be worth going into what the bible says about divorce and remarriage and stuff at some point because i 
I got remarried about, so I got remarried in August and it is now November. So that, what is that? Three months, four months, yeah, something like that. Anyway. And Kyle was one of my groomsmen. Um, what did you think of the wedding? Did you like it? Yeah, it was the first wedding I was ever part of as like one of the wedding party, but it's you know, groomsmen. Uh sorry, not yeah, groomsmen, that's right. Um yeah. I, I want to make sure I'm not saying best man. You had another person be the best man, but um, so it's kind of it's it's easy. It's easy to be a groomsman. You don't have to do anything. Um, but so yeah, I enjoyed the uh yeah, seeing you get married, eating cheesecake. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was a pretty great wedding. We had um, uh, my my wife, Amanda, and I grew up in the Philippines together. And so we had um, what you call, a, we had a, a full lechon. So that's like a roast pig. And um, it was awesome. It was the best Filipino food I've ever had. And I was, I'm not a huge fan of Filipino food. Oftentimes... You know, growing up in the Philippines, it was often served cold because usually it's like one person preparing food for lots of people and you don't start eating until it's all ready. And so it's like half of it is cold by that point. But this was amazing. Was excellent, excellent food. And uh, there were a bunch of MKs there, people from Faith Academy. Um, so it was a good time. But yeah, that's been my journey over the last couple of years was... Uh, getting divorced when I didn't want to. And I think if I had any advice to give people who are going through an unwanted divorce, especially basically. So Christians have a lot, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but what, what would be your, we don't have to go into gross details about this too, but you come from a background of divorce. What's your general, I don't mean that you've personally been divorced, but that, you know, there are divorces <laughs> in your family history. And mm -hmm. from a, from a sort of typical American Christian perspective, what's the knee jerk response you think most of the time? The typical Christian response. Yeah. Like what do you, what's the first thing you think of if like, what's the first thing you think American Christians tend to think when they hear someone's getting divorced? Like, um you understand what i'm saying like is it like a moral judgment or is it just yeah. not a big deal anymore um probably a moral judgment uh but sort of maybe it is what it is what it is <laughs> type attitude as well um i don't know because we kind of just accept that uh, it does happen unfortunately even if we think it um uh, not and of course it's going to depend on the situation too um a lot of divorces will happen um due to selfishness of both parties but sometimes it could be abuse and i think people generally react differently to uh, abuse situations than non-abuse situations um but there could be, and I, I do know some Christians who have been divorced for whom, you know, they would have said uh, they would have been more judgmental beforehand, but now that they're divorced now, they understand. 
Um, yeah. So sometimes people don't even really go to church again until after they divorce. So sometimes their lives are just very different between the two phases of their life. Um, but so I guess, I, I guess for me, it's, there can be a moral judgment, but also I try to realize that I don't know the story and I can kind of have a, it is what it is <laughs> type stoic attitude because I'm just used to um, hearing it like, yeah, I guess that was bound to happen. Um, yeah. So it's sort of like deject dejection or like, uh, nah, I mean, what else can you expect of life? Uh, I don't know if that's, that's probably supposed to come off as stoic and accepting, but it's probably just more depressing than anything. Yeah. I mean, what I was expecting was I was expecting a lot of judgment, just a lot of people being like, well, you need to do more, you know, like you need to fight and you can't let her go and stuff like that. And I just really didn't encounter it. Um, hmm. The church, I don't know if, I mean, I hadn't been going to church for quite a while. Um because I had been going to the church that you and I became friends at is very dysfunctional and has some real psychological and spiritual problems. But uh, I had been going to church for a while and that's apparently in the data, that's a big part of, I don't know what the social science would actually say about this, but there's definitely a correlation between people not going to church and getting divorced. And it's not like people never get divorced if they're going to church, but there's definitely a connection between lack of church engagement and divorce. And there's just in hindsight, it's just not very surprising what happened. Um, and I think ultimately it is my responsibility and my failure as the man. And I felt like I was like, okay, well, she wants to leave. I'm going to go ahead and, I started this, I'm going to finish this. And, um, I was, I was surprised. So the church I started going to again during the pandemic was extremely supportive and they were very happy for me when I started dating Amanda. Um, and they were just great. And they, they were not, I think that the, the typical problem with American progressive Christians is that they support everything and that they wasn't really, that wasn't what it was. It wasn't like, Oh, everything you're saying and doing is great, but I was being open and accountable with them about stuff. And hmm. they would, you know, they never encouraged me to do anything that they did not think was biblical. And it's probably, I, at some point I would really like to go spend time in an extremely progressive, I don't know, like Unitarian church. Like I saw a YouTube video the other day at a, at, that a Unitarian church was doing uh, non-binary reveals or something like that. Um, and sort of forcing children to like go in front of the church and say that they're like not a boy or girl. And it was very strange. Yeah. And um, I, 
I was like, you know, I, cause this is, I think something that was sort of revealed. I know you don't care that much about politics, but a lot of people were shocked that this red wave that was supposed to happen in the midterms didn't really happen. And there probably is kind of a red wave because it, it does look like anyway, I don't really want to get into the details of that stuff, but people keep being surprised that other people believe things like truly believe things. And so like, I think a lot of conservatives thought, I kind of thought this too, that when the Supreme court reversed Roe v. Wade, that no one was really going to care because it really didn't matter. Like the States that have the extremely barbaric abortion laws that they want have them. And the ones that don't, don't, but like Kentucky didn't even pass in the midterms. Kentucky wasn't even able to pass the abortion law that they wanted. And it was a pretty straightforward, very conservative law. And abortion did play a much bigger part in the midterms than people wanted to tell themselves it was going to myself included. I just was like, I don't understand why, why wouldn't the biggest thing be COVID? You know, most people's lives, abortions have actually been decreasing in America for a while now too. Um, They're not anything like they were back in the heyday of, you know, evangelicals talking about it constantly. And um, I I just, I, I, I mentioned all that to say there's this tendency to, so there's a lot of people on the American right, and I don't even know how much this is in the American right, but there's like a, you know, sort of the religious right, the, the unarticulate religious right, let's call it, will, you know, they look at the left and they're like, these people are baby murderers. Um, they love murdering babies. And then there's people on the left and they're like, oh, they all want us to live in Gilead, you know, the place where the handmaid's tale takes place like this is what the republicans want they want to enslave women and turn them into baby <laughs> not, factories not the marilyn robinson novel gilead no which we did you have to read that at talbot i didn't have to but i did read it and i liked it one of our one of my professors assigned it to us um and his reasoning was because i don't think i ever finished it though one of his reasoning was that um he wanted to make sure that we still read fiction while we were in seminary then <laughs> uh, uh is it a good novel uh, i think it is yeah i okay. actually remember uh you know who lydia mcgrew is um mm-hmm. i remember uh, and, her, and her daughter bethel mcgrew too they're both literature people and um they're both like oh we don't like marilyn robinson theologically at all but man her novels are so, so good <laughs> so um, isn't she a presbyterian uh i think they're anglican Oh, she is? She's Anglican? Bethel is, at least. I'm not sure if her parents are. Oh, no, I meant Marilyn Robinson. Oh, Marilyn Robinson. Um, oh, I don't know. Because I think the care isn't the main character in Gilead a Presbyterian minister? I forgot. Okay, well, so the McGrews are Anglicans? I think so. But they're like Christians that are Anglican. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they're not inerrantists, so maybe they're not Christians. Um... <laughs> Why aren't they? What, what do they mean by that? Because she seems so much more like an old school inerrantist do you know what i, I mean am, yeah i am kidding by the way when i say they're not christians but no um, i know i knew that was a joke but like well, when you say she's not an errantist 
Um, so they no, for people listening, Lydia McGrew is not a Christian. Like, let's be clear. Wait, that's why that's why she writes books about, you know, Jesus and how liberal Mike Lacona is. <laughs> Wait, sorry. Is that a joke, too? Yes, it's a joke. <laughs> OK, anyway, now. Um, what was the question? The question was, so she's not an inerrantist, but I don't know okay. what that means for her because right. Mike Lacona is one of the guys that's gotten in trouble about, okay, can you hear my cat? Uh, very slightly. Okay, I so uh, before we get too far down this this tangent, which I think is good. Um, so my ex-wife took two of our old cats and I kept Josie, which if you pay attention, if you follow me on Facebook or anything, Josie is a constant source of consternation because she huh. hates everybody but me. Um, and we just got a new kitten that we are naming uh, Lily. Um, and she's very cute and very obnoxious. And she will probably start screaming for food at some point while we're recording. In any case, so back to Lydia McGrew. So like Mike Lacona, I think. Right. Was, okay. Was Lacona kicked out of ets uh by norm geisler but i remember norman geisler did get on lacona's case years ago because um he his thought view that... of the opening of the graves the passage i think that was the straw that broke the handles back with geisler yeah i think he i get i think geisler thought that lacona's views basically like would entail that he's not an inerrantist or something like that um now lacona what I think believes he's an inerrantist. Um, oh yeah, he definitely, but, he thinks he's a, I think he thinks he's a Chicago statement of faith style inerrantist, mm -hmm. which is what I consider myself. But um, like as for um, the McGrews, uh, since I don't know how to dis even describe inerrancy, I'm not sure what I would say is that like Bethel has made a big deal on Twitter sometimes about how um, she thinks that the conquest narratives in the Old Testament and like Joshua and them are not like those. If those are literally true, then that would go against the goodness of God. But God is good. So those passages must have been like a mistake from the authors or something like that. Um, so like they are they don't hold to, you know, uh, like Paul Copan's view of the conquest accounts. They think that nah, there's like, we can't like that's If we, those conquest accounts are really kind of a problem for Christianity. And we don't think that God actually commanded the um, Israelites to attack the Canaanites and stuff like that. So I think that that's a view that they hold. So it, it's in some sense a way that they are not inerrantists. Okay, that's kind of oh man, I got which is shocking when you consider how unbelievably like theologically conservative and ethically conservative and all that stuff they tend to be, um, on almost anything. So they, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know what that has. Okay, so the the question of inerrancy there is that the text of scripture the canon of scripture as we have it has things that are false. 
I think so. But then you got a guy like Randall Rouser who really rustles up people's feathers sometimes, but he would call himself an inerrantist, but like he thinks that there are errors in the Bible, but he thinks that God intentionally put the errors in there for whatever purpose. So that's how he's an inerrantist or something like that. So, um, I don't See, know. I think is Rouser is the one that was on Unbelievable recently debating with Paul Copen, right? Yeah, which I still need to listen to. But um, he, See, I, I really felt like by the end of that, Rouser, in my opinion, had lost all theoret theological credibility. I'd love to have him on this podcast at some point, so I'm not going to say much more than that. But by the end of that episode, and you can go listen for yourself, but. By the end of the episode, I really basically felt like what he was saying was that because our moral intuitions, okay, I think there were, there, I think what he was trying to do was be honest. And so the honesty is my moral intuitions are incompatible with quote unquote Canaanite genocide, even though I don't think Canaanite genocide actually took place. And I don't really know anybody that does think that genocide took place you know what you should go listen to that episode and then we can discuss it because i there were some interesting things at the end but i basically felt like if you if i'm taking the most charitable interpretation by the end it was deeply unclear that what rouser was saying made sense and copan Mm. you might disagree with copan but at least what he was saying made sense which was that scripture is still inerrant but we don't like a a superficial reading of this doesn't uh doesn't work or it's not like morally applicable in the ways that some people think it is or it's not morally troubling troubling but what rouser seemed to be saying was this is morally troubling and we know it's immoral and to me, that's just sort of a denial that that's scripture in some sense. And it's like, I I don't think it was in the, so like in terms of, I, I think this podcast probably will have an apologetics bent uh, from time to time, hopefully. But like, this is, this is something that's bugged me for years is how atheists go to the old testament and they find what to me seems to be very consistently a god of love throughout the entire bible and they find anything they don't like like the um who's the guy that sacrifices his daughter after he's one of the judges and um i know you're talking about unfortunately uh, i feel like under any other circumstance i would remember the name but I can't remember um, his name. Jeff, Jed, not, not Jeff Ta. Jeroboam? Um, no. Jeroboam? I, we could just look it up, but we're not going to because we're lazy. But in any case, there is this narrative in, in the judges where a judge uh, pledges uh, whatever, whatever comes out of his house uh, to meet him. Your free meeting will end in 10 minutes. So we can either upgrade or anyway, we'll deal with that some other time, but basically, so he pledges to God, whatever comes out of my house, I will sacrifice to you. And, um, 
when I was a kid, the first time I encountered this story, I think was Adventures in Odyssey. And the way they portray, so basically what happens is he goes and he does this thing and he comes back and his daughter comes out to greet him, his only daughter. And he's super upset because he's like, oh crap, I have to sacrifice my daughter to God. Now it's pretty much universally acknowledged human sacrifice, no bueno for the Torah. Right. Right. And so if you go on, like, is it the factual atheist or the rational Bible or something? It's one of these like really angry, really kind of idiotic atheist sites. They'll list this as, you know, here's human sacrifice, the old Testament. Um, Even though the consistent witness of the old Testament is that human sacrifice is bad. And when I was presented this story as a kid, it was actually, there's an, there's ambiguity in the adventures and odyssey episode. They're like, well, we don't really know if he did it. I think that's just BS. It seemed he, most Bible commentators think that he sacrificed his daughter to Yahweh. And if you read most of them, it's really clear. This judge's moral character is already suspect in his brief narrative. He's not a pinnacle of you know old testament israelite <laughs> ethics well the judges i think tended to be um yeah sure they were big leaders that got israelites out of trouble but they were typically um you know portrayed as very um morally flawed and all that stuff and yeah kind of and like and so the question is not is what he did right it's why did he do it anyway? Because God doesn't want human sacrifice and they will, you know, really I uncharitable. Guess, what? I guess another question could be, um, why didn't God stop it? No, that's a general type of, um, like when people, when people conclude that God wanted the sacrifice or something that would contradict other passages in the OT about God, not wanting human sacrifice, but, um, there could be like the general, why didn't God stop it? Which that's just the general, why did God stop evil in general? So, um, but yeah, well, so- and you look at, if you look at the narrative and I think most commentators are pretty clear on this. If you look at the narrative, I think it's really clear. He is essentially engaging in for lack of a, a less loaded word, witchcraft. So he is trying to get a result from God that God has already promised by engaging in Canaanite pagan ritual. So like human sacrifice is something that they did. And so by doing that, he is, he is treating the God of Israel like a Canaanite, like an ancient Near East deity that he is not. And he's doing it to try to assure, because here's the thing that's so funny. The way that this story was presented to me as a child is that like, Maybe he thought like an animal was going to come out of his house because, you know, like back then they're agrarian people. They've got animals all over the place. Um, That's not what most commentators think. Most commentators think the pledge from the beginning is a pledge for human sacrifice. And that what's so tragic is that only his daughter comes out by herself to greet him. And 
that's the point at which maybe God actually is interfering in the narrative and, and providentially bringing his daughter out, I think with the hope that he won't do it. Like he won't, he'll repent of what he said he would do. He'll break his oath before God and take the consequences for breaking an oath and do the right thing. At least one commentator said something like that. That makes a lot of sense to me, but he goes through it anyway. And this seems to me, this is part of what makes sense of, of Canaanite genocide to some degree too, is that. I see God's mercy in everything in the Old Testament now. And some of this is the Bible project. Some of this is Michael Heiser. Some of this is just being a Christian for a long time and just kind of being like, look, God is good. And just because I have um, specific uh, moral intuitions doesn't mean that I'm in the right and God's in the wrong. And like if he's if if he's giving it's not like the it's not like the Canaanites didn't have a chance to repent. They had many chances to repent. And even Israel's sin in disbelieving God in the initial attempt to go into Canaan um gives gives Canaan another 40 years to turn away from their wickedness. And if you could go back in time and you could just look at these societies we would want to destroy these societies. I think if we saw the kind of rampant, the, the public orgies and child sacrifice being practiced and open unashamedly, I think we would find these societies so morally appalling that if, you know, this is, this is the thing to me that's so weird about the atheist critique. So the atheist critique is like the old Testament God is awful and we don't want to be like that. We want to be, the opposite. We want to be enlightened liberal people, right? And we would never do any of those things. But then we do things like invade Afghanistan or colonize places, you know, whatever. And we do lots of the same kinds of things. And yes, there are there is a lot of talk about how those things are wrong. But at the same time, you know, my other cat, I just realized I put outside and she is screaming to get back in. Why don't we take a break and then we'll restart. Are you okay with that? Okay. Before the timer runs out on its own. Okay. So this ends the first part of the reboot episode for my podcast. All right. Okay. So to kind of finish my thoughts, I just think that the... The moral abhorrence a lot of people have with Canaanite genocide, if it's about, I get that if it's about like if genocide actually took place, if an ethnic cleansing took place, yes, that's really horrifying. I don't think there's any biblical evidence that an ethnic cleansing actually did take place. The way that the command is initially given, it assumes that there will be survivors, even though it sounds like it says wipe them all out. It assumes that they won't actually do that. And a lot of times, a lot of times we see that there are survivors. Yes, that's the um, other thing too. They'll go, "Oh, we completely destroyed these people," and then a few chapters later, they're fighting them again. It's like, oh, so they didn't completely destroy them. Yeah, which is why people like Copan and Flanagan and others say, um, 
Well, in ancient Near Eastern times, you see that kind of um, war rhetoric that people use, similar to how we use rhetoric in sports about like the Cowboys destroying the 49ers or something like that. Oh, that would be so beautiful if that had happened last year in the <laughs> playoffs. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. It's it's like it's like the NFL. Yeah, we annihilated them last weekend, and then you have to play them again in a couple of weeks. And it's funny because this is why this was never an issue in the history of the church. There's not a serious discussion of this in 2000 years of church history until very recently. And it's for that reason. Anytime it came up, they, they knew that the Canaanites had not been completely destroyed. And so I, I mean, I think it might be a question that gets brought up in church histories in terms of like whether or not it's about inerrancy, because it's like, well, if they if they said they completely destroyed them and then they didn't, what does that mean? I don't know. It's just it's it's a very recent problem and recent problems to me are almost always based in some kind of modernist intuition that usually is not very common. It's usually a white Western liberal concern. And that's what I think a lot of this debate is. And I think that's the main thing that Rouser is bringing to it are white Western liberal moral intuitions. Anyway, social justice of you. I mean, yeah, but that's sort of the thing that's so silly about some of this stuff is a lot of it is like, yeah, I, I just think that it's it's not possible to to not see it once someone points that out. Well, speaking of whiteies, um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on movies doing the whole race swapping thing that a lot of people seem to dislike? Um, like, are you talking specifically about Ariel? Well, she's a recent example, um, but you know other examples can be brought up and i just it, it's a complex uh it, it's a, probably a more complex kind of conversation than people make it out to be well i did you did you read my review of uh, rings of power oh i didn't know you sorry i didn't even realize you reviewed that i don't think you're subscribed to my substack you should well, subscribe to my substack okay um well i'll do that actually but <laughs> Yeah, so I didn't um, actually even watch Rings of Power, but um, I I loved it. And okay, wow. th okay, this was what was weird to me about it was that I see. Here's the thing: I have this sort of affinity for black intellectuals, black actors. Um, I think it's I think it's great. I don't think it's great for like. For me, it's not an ideological thing. I just think Idris Elba should be in everything, you know. Like, <laughs> right. and I just and I think everybody should read Thomas Soul and stuff like that, you know. And these are just, for whatever reason, these are just things that I I think and feel. Um, and uh, one of the things I enjoy, and it was weird because okay, in Rings of Power, they're it's a you know. I don't even know if racially diverse is really the best way to put it, but there are definitely uh, black actors cast in roles that there's no way Tolkien saw these 
these is, you know, being dark skinned. Um, some people have actually tried to defend him on this point, but it just makes no sense. Like he's telling Scandinavian mythology, there's no black people up there. And he's been accused of being a racist partially for this reason in the past. And actually there's letters where he talks about explicitly why he hated national socialism. And it was because they were so racist. And so in his mind, it had nothing to do with colonialism or racism or any sort of ideological thing. It's just that the way he saw middle earth, the areas of middle earth that he's telling the stories from these are just, they're white. And I think that's, pretty common like most of the time when people are telling stories they're envisioning things from their perspective indian stories uh they envision indians in their mythology african even, mythology what well even even depictions of jesus i've seen depictions of jesus from other countries and he doesn't look like what we probably grew up seeing well i don't know what you grew up saying but he probably doesn't look like what i grew up saying um uh, you know uh, the the white long hair pretty boy yeah i mean and you know there's a really famous mural of jesus at uh i think it's a black church in alabama and he's being depicted as black and i does it matter like we don't know what the historical jesus actually looked like despite what whatever that one magazine popular science or whatever did oh. that did that thing where he looks like he might even be Mexican or something like that. And yeah, maybe he did. I don't know. I don't really think Jesus' skin color matters. But if you're making a theological point about how Jesus would have identified with uh, you know, what Jesus means for the for blacks living under Jim Crow or something like that, like I, I've never had a problem with any of that stuff. I think it's really beautiful. Um, but what was surprising to me, so two things were surprising to me about rings of power. So one, because there are, I don't know if there's anything besides just like people of African and European heritage. So if they're, if they're, I don't know if they're Asians or in any case, they're definitely, you know, there's, there's non-white actors. And I was surprised by how tonally off it felt at first. And it, cause the Lord of the Rings is a Scandinavian Anglo-Saxon myth. And it felt like Dungeons and Dragons. Like as soon as I started mm. watching it, it was like, this feels like generic sort of eighties fantasy. Did it almost feel like that world of Warcraft movie? It was similar. Yeah. It's sort of similar. It's that kind of, yeah, it's that generic late 20th century fantasy, which is influenced by Tolkien, but it's not really high fantasy in the same sense. It's like the sort of Shannara, that kind of thing. You know, it's like it's Tolkien adjacent, but it's not really Tolkien. And I love that kind of thing, actually, but it's just not Tolkien. And I was kind of surprised by how tonally different it felt just by including people that weren't white, but the people they picked are some of the best actors in the show. So like, there's this one elf who's, who's black and he feels like he, he might be the most elvish 
of all the elves because he brings such like gravitas to the role. Elves are supposed to be like old, you know, and mm-hmm. like they're supposed to be wise and feel very mystical and things like that. And this is one of the reasons why I think one of my biggest problems with the Lord of the Rings trilogy is probably Legolas because I just don't think that Orlando Bloom is really bringing that to the role. Um, I don't I don't even understand how writers write that. <laughs> like how, none of how us do you write thousand year old characters. Yeah, none of us have ever yeah. experienced that. I don't even understand how you write that. Well, I think the main way you, it. Yeah, I think the main way you write it is you don't write it. Like you don't have them doing things that you you probably underwrite characters like that. And I think, you know, Elrond, Hugo Weaving, especially as Elrond, to me, that's like sort of what an elf should feel like. He feels very, he feels old. And, and so I, I, I mean, my initial response is always, look, I just want the best actor in the role. This stuff is fiction. So, I think that trying to one of my favorite things about the Godfather films, have you seen the Godfather? I actually have not. I, for some reason, I just haven't really felt like wanting to watch that. Okay. I don't know if you would like them, but one of my favorite things about the Godfather films is how closely they resemble reality. And I think that, there's especially in the 70s some of the best films of the 70s have this real sort of what's called cinema verite so it's like cinema truth like a realness to the cinema like it feels almost like a documentary william friedkin's the exorcist for as fantastical as some of the stuff that happens in that film the way it's shot and the way it's all done it feels like you are watching something that is actually happening and some of the best 70s films are like that. That to me is very, is as much, that that's like an anomaly in visual storytelling. I think a lot of the best visual storytelling embraces the fact that this is not a documentary. This is not a document. This is a telling. This is a story. And so how do you tell the story in the most effective way? Like Hunt for Red October. That film benefits from the fact that Sean Connery is not speaking Russian for most of the movie. And they acknowledge it early on because he is speaking Russian for the first like five minutes. And then they do this thing where they go into this document and then the camera comes out and everybody's speaking English. And so they're like, look, this is a play. This is a movie. This is for fun. This is not a documentary. And I think that's the best way in general to approach visual storytelling and the fact that there was and there wasn't a lot but the fact that there was any kind of murmurings on the right about you know black elves and black hobbits and stuff to me is just you know it's part of what makes a lot of this stuff silly because it's like we know they're doing this for quote-unquote woke reasons but does it actually matter uh i don't think so i mean it was a little weird to me when I saw that Ariel had been cast um, as this this black girl, just because I 
I don't know. It was just kind of weird. It was just sort of surprising. You know, I mean, if like Aladdin or some, because it, it's sort of a European fairy tale, I guess, is the main thing I was just like, oh, this is a little weird. Um, And it just feels like it's it's being done so on purpose, you know. Uh, but a lot of them haven't bothered. In fact, I don't even think most of them have people have commented on like um, I was thinking about this. I've been thinking about this a, like off and on for the last couple of years is how DC has done this kind of much more quietly. Um, and I'm trying to think of some of the more explicit ones oh yeah like on the flash show they recast uh uh i cannot remember well they didn't recast they just from the beginning of the flash show um barry allen's main love interest is irish iris west i think her family is black from the beginning and i don't remember there being any controversy about it i don't think dc trumpeted it they just did it um kind of like when you know john stewart green lantern came about and that was the thing i grew up with a black green lantern hmm. uh oh, yeah. you know on the end i that's the third green lantern i think in dc or fourth depending on how you're counting green lanterns but and i think the john stewart green lantern is awesome I haven't watched the new DC animated film with him, but uh, I just, I, I want to be in the kind of society where this stuff doesn't really matter. And I think if you talk to like minorities, American minorities that are not in positions where they have to pontificate about these things, in my experience, that has been the more common, like, I wish I didn't have to think about this stuff is kind of the attitude, but we still do for various reasons. What do you think about it? I mean, do you, I, you asked me, but why, I mean, mm -hmm. is this something that bothers you or? Uh, I wouldn't say it bothers me. No, I think, um, I think that you're probably right that the reasoning I might not I might not like the reasoning, but at the same time, these are also um, fictions. And I understand that fictions are retold all the time, often um, changed up and told in a different way slightly. Well, I hope the Little Mermaid movie, for example, will be told in a slightly different way. If it's just the same movie, but live action, then <laughs> I don't care. But um, which I think is I, I generally not cared about the live action Disney movies anyway. And I didn't really watch Rings of Power, but um, I don't really care. It's just I was wondering what your thoughts are, because it's just one of those things you can hear talked about sometimes. But it is also one of those topics that maybe you just hear people on Twitter on some some segments of Twitter talk about maybe not in real life. And Twitter is not real life. Yeah. I think um, for me, it's going to matter more how well the character is written, like the Castlevania series on Netflix. Um, Isaac is. I think Isaac in the games is white, um, but he's this uh, black Muslim man in the Castlevania series on Netflix. But he's a very well-written character. He's like a very interesting character. So, and that's what's going to matter to me more. Um, that's, that's a great show. 
Yeah, oh, I think the first two seasons are better, but um, yeah, you can almost just stop <laughs> there. But whatever. Um, so it's going to matter to me more if it's well written, and um, I'm I'm a fan of having more diversity. There's some there's some times where I kind of don't like the whole adding diversity to fill up a checkbox. Like, I don't know, when we treat diversity like a checkbox, I kind of don't like that. But at the same time, I actually do really like seeing diversity, um, racial or ability-wise or things in shows. I watched um this um, animated show called The Dragon Prince with my nephew a bit, and um, one of the characters is deaf. And it's like, I is there a particular reason why? Not really, but do I think it's kind of neat? Yeah, I kind of like that. I kind of like seeing a character that speaks in sign language. Um, and that's not even a racial thing, but yeah, I'm a fan of seeing it all. What I kind of wonder is um, the voice acting realm. Uh, like, you know how in live action, uh, I remember Scarlett Johansson getting in some trouble because she was going to play as a trans character, but people were like, no, a trans person should play as a trans character. Uh, remember that? Well, I remember when she was in Ghost in the Shell. Oh, yeah, there is that, too. And that was controversial. I... Yeah, because Matoko is a Asian woman, although there was a twist that I was expecting to see as soon as I saw that, and I was right. Um, I don't know if I should spoil the movie. Obviously, I don't think anybody cares about it. And it's been yeah, does anybody... years. I haven't even seen the live action version. I don't really care. Well, okay, so spoiler warning for the live action Ghost in the Shell if you haven't seen it yet. But my suspicion when advertisements for that movie came out and Scarlett Johansson was the actress and people were like, oh no, she should be a Japanese woman. My suspicion was that Matoko or the major would actually be a Japanese woman, but she was given the body like, you know, Matoko's body is a cyber mechanical body um, or the major. And I figured she was just given the body of a white woman, like to change her identity. And turns out I was right. Like Scarlett runs into her Japanese mother and they eventually realize, you know, who each other is like, oh, this is my daughter. Oh, this is my mother. Um, so, yeah, she actually <laughs> is a Japanese woman who is, you know, turned into a white woman. Um, so, yep, that's Ghost in the Shell. Live action. Wow. But that's so weird. Yeah, but uh, I think what I think about is like animation. Um, like there's some controversies in voice act, well, it's in voice acting, games, cartoons, whatever, where um, you know, white actors might be ha- might be used to voice black characters, and throughout history with film and all that, there's always been like a problem where. They take white people and have them play as Middle Easterners or, uh, you know, other kinds of um, ethnicities. And there's sometimes been very, very unflattering portrayals, um, you know, that these white actors have done of these other characters that are supposed to be, you know, Chinese or whatever. So I definitely understand that problem. Um, so there's like a, a call for you know, like black characters to be actually played by black people and stuff like that. And I understand that. Um, I guess I get worried about the logic of, well, does this mean that 
a character of a particular race or sexuality can only be played by a character with a particular race or sexuality? And does that mean that, like, if I'm a trans male, I can't play as a cis male or... Um, I, if I... I, yeah, I think it's this really kind of silly game that we're playing because it's not even going to matter in a couple of years when the ethical tide is turned. Right. Yeah. So well, like in a couple of years when they're on to some other thing, you know, yeah. The, one of the, the thing I almost wrote a piece about this, but one thing I was thinking about with, with Ariel in particular was like people trumpeting us as if this is a good thing that this is like a moral thing that she was recast that recast that Ariel's now going to be black. I was like, well, if you really think that, I think if you're going to take a, you know, anti-colonialist, which I do consider myself a kind of anti-colonialist, if you're going to take an anti-colonialist intersectional, which I don't really consider myself intersectional in terms of my thinking, but if you're really going to be like, what is power? Like, where is the power in this? Like, who is, how is this happening? What does this mean from a power dynamic perspective? It's kind of, it's really insulting. And it's actually more of a, it's more really evidence of white supremacy than not white supremacy. Because these decisions are being made by mostly powerful white men still. That's essentially who still runs and owns Disney. And they're being done essentially for white reasons. Uh, Shelby Steele, one of my favorite black intellectuals, wrote a whole book on this called White Guilt. And that's who this is mostly appealing to. Like, I'm sure that there are, uh, I'm sure that there are black people that like to be able to see Ariel, you know, a Disney princess look look black to not be right. white well there is a video that i think disney shared um just um showing the reactions that, of that little black cute little girl yeah yeah and which you know that's which that's heartwarming stuff it's great i like well, that yeah they can, and that's yeah. i love that they can see somebody that, that that they look like there's there's comics that i see sometimes making fun of that and i don't really like it when people do crap like that but um it's like you know a little girl and she's black and she likes seeing the black Ariel. But then there's in the second panel, there's a bunch of boys of all different races pointing at Optimus Primal and going, Whoa. <laughs> or yeah, Goku. You, you sent me that meme where it was like all of these different things that like boys universally, like one of them was like Sonic the Hedgehog or Goku or yeah. whatever. <laughs> now, but I, um, I don't, I wouldn't personally ever make a joke like that. Cause I think it's perfectly fine for people to, um, be very inspired by, um, you know, somebody who looks like them. So it's but, just, yeah. okay. Yes. And no, because if you care about being anti-colonialist and like being aware of what the power dynamics are, I actually think as cute as it was to watch that little girl, it's like, to me, Tyler Perry, and I don't like Tyler Perry's films that much. I think they're entertaining. But Tyler Perry has been doing his own thing for decades. 
And if you really care about black culture or black people having like their stuff, Tyler Perry is much more anti-colonialist than a black mermaid because what's really happening in that thing. And I don't want to take like a really disgusting interpretation of this, but this little girl is kind of being sucked into a white supremacist commercial framework. And it's happening for very, uh, you know, this is a, this is a European tale that is now being, uh, Africanized, but not Africanized at all. It's, it's purely superficial. It just has to do with skin color. And so it, to me, it would be, it's like, to me, Black Panther in a lot of ways is the epitome of this. And the new one has just come out and apparently it's amazing, but that's not African culture. This is this is American Jews in the sixties, which I apparently, apparently people are now saying that just, just saying Jew is like a pejorative term. I don't, I don't, I'm just saying that these are people of Jewish descent, like Stanley and whoever the, I can't remember the artist was maybe, maybe the artist wasn't Jewish, but Stanley is of Jewish descent. And these are, these are American comic book creators um, creating an African, a quote unquote African character. There's nothing authentically African about Black Panther at all. And yet this hmm. was trumpeted as like, because this is, this is what these debates don't happen in other countries. They happen in America because there is no base race in America. Now it, it there there are predominantly white people in America. That's still true. It probably won't be true in about, I don't know, 30, 40 years. But like, there is no base race. There is no national language. You don't have to. I just visited Puerto Rico for the first time. You need to know Spanish if you're going to actually live in Puerto Rico. Uh, there is no... There is no, and for people who don't realize it, yes, Puerto Rico is part of the United States, even though it's not a state. Um, and so if you're really concerned about this stuff from intersectional framework, I think Black Ariel is disturbing. I'm not super worried about this stuff. I think there are bigger fish to fry when it comes to anti-colon, like what we need to be genuinely anti-colonialist about. And like one of those things is California secession and things like that, where I think that you have essentially white liberals who basically rule what is in many ways a lower class conservative, like middle-class conservative white on the, you know, the more inland part of California. And then you have a lot of essentially, you know, Mexicans that are living in a American colony that's being run by people that don't agree with their values. And that's to me kind of what it's a complicated thing about something like black Ariel, because yeah, I love seeing that little girl light up. That's beautiful. But like, if you're super woke, I think you should find that troubling. And it's, this is the problem with woke Twitter is it's not like, like, is it who, who's, who's the, 
who's the philosopher that was in the matrix films cornell west <laughs> so cornell west as soon as obama was out of office cornell west wrote a scathing indictment of obama's presidency from a leftist you know black perspective and that he really did not do the kinds of things that if you have the sort of perspective on politics that Obama claims he had, that he did not do the kind of things that, that he should have done. And the same kind of stuff that came from the American right after George Bush was done being president. That's the real, especially from a Christian perspective, the real anti-colonialism, the most dangerous anti-colonialism needs to be directed at power and what's actually happening. I don't know how much black Ariel even matters. I'm just saying that like, if you're going to be consistent about intersectionality and white privilege and all that stuff, that is not just a, an unqualified moral uh, good. No. Can you hear me? That is not just a what? It's not just an unqualified moral win. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, I'll be clear that overall I'm I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Um Yeah, I really don't care either. And the Disney just, there there's like philosophical questions that come up in my mind and that's why I I like to talk about it, but um it's fine. I'm still not going to watch the live action Disney movies <laughs> and uh Rings of Power. I don't even have Prime. I can't watch Rings of Power. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I love seeing talented people in things. And right. if this if this girl is really talented, I really don't care. But like if you're going to claim that we live in a white uh, paternalistic, whatever. I mean, that's the thing. It is kind of white paternalism. It's like we're doing this. Because we can. This is the thing that disturbed me the most. And I'm only about halfway through it, but um, Robin D'Angelo's uh, White Fragility. What disturbed me the most is how infantilizing it is to American racial minorities. So, like the the Negro Leagues, and I know that 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 word is offensive to people now, but you you have these 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 black baseball leagues that coexist with major league baseball and they play amazing baseball and yeah segregation was evil and jim crow was a disgusting system that met a just end but she tells this narrative in white fragility about jackie robinson and how Jackie Robinson's not really the hero of Jackie Robinson's story. Branch Rickey is. Branch Rickey is the the uh, the owner, general manager. I can't remember which one of. I think he was the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And his white power is what enabled him to get Jackie to break the color line in MLB. And so it's really. His white supremacy is the hero. So because he's white and he's in a white supremacist system, 
he's the hero. He's the one that does the right thing. And that's what they should all be doing. They should be paternalistic. That's, that's really what she's advocating for. She's advocating for a system of white supremacy where white men fix all the problems. That's crazy. Now, that's also probably a little bit of a mischaricature because I haven't finished the book. But that is the way she presents the Jackie Robinson story. And to me, the hero of the Jackie Robinson story is that Black Americans created an amazing baseball culture while being persecuted. That to me is the story. So many of the stories of like the actual, like Thaddeus Russell is one of my favorite podcasters. And I disagree with him on like almost everything because he's super postmodern. But one of my favorite things about him is how he's like, some of my favorite people in American history were American slaves because they actually were persecuted like as slaves they're owned by other people and they make so many things that we value about american culture as slaves like i know i i've said this in other places before but it's just like you infantilize people and you say everything is only about this thing it's only about power and the only people that actually have it because this is what intersectionality teaches are white males and so they've got to do everything. And that's just not true. People do stuff all the time under systems of oppression that are amazing and beautiful and powerful. And it seems like it's it's what keeps, what consistently makes people unhappy in our, I think Christians really need to listen to this because a lot of, of American evangelicals are unhappy because they're not in political power. And the truth is they never were. American evangelicals weren't even really known as a thing in the elite sectors of American politics until the 50s and 60s. And then they had this sort of brief rise to cultural power, I guess, you can, if you can call it that, with the American right or the moral majority and that stuff in the 80s and 90s. That's all very illusory. Like the stuff that American evangelicals wanted was never enacted. And now that it it has been kind of in the reversal of Roe, there's already a massive leftist backlash to this. And so like, I think people are most happy when they're not seeking political power, when they're being apolitical, when they're living life following Jesus caring for their families, working hard, making art, doing all of these things in the shadow of power. You are correct, I think. Though many people feel like they are morally obligated to kind of engage in politics all the time. And that can be hard to... Uh, <laughs> when people feel like they're morally obligated to do that and when they are making people feel like they should feel morally morally obligated to be following the politics all the time and doing everything politically then it can be hard to uh kind of get around that well and this is i mean i don't believe in democracy i don't i think that it doesn't work i don't think it even makes sense actually because the point is mostly what we're doing when we vote is canceling other votes so it's literally, it's actually silencing people. When I was uh, canvassing, 
um, in California for a brief amount of time, there was a, uh, woman i went up to a door there's a woman there and she says that she and her husband always vote the opposite so she's like we just cancel each other out um so yeah we're gonna have to take a break here in a second but yeah i just think that this is this is i guess i i'm not going to claim because i just keep seeing i'm wrong about things the older i get but i'm not going to claim that there isn't some kind of responsibility for Christians to be vocal in the public square or that there isn't something. It's just that the way we're doing it so much is based in, and I think the left is doing all the same things, but I don't care so much about what they're doing as what we're doing wrong because I don't think they're going to listen to me anyway. But it it there needs to be less anxiety like if we're if we really believe what we believe we're monarchists we have a king and he doesn't live on earth currently and he's ultimately in charge and so like what is happening is happening for reasons that are beyond our ken and we don't need to understand all this stuff. We need to be faithful to the callings he's given us. And for some people that is political, but there's just so much anxiety around it. That's the thing to me. It cannot, our politics, our, our efforts as Christians, they can never be based in fear. They can never be purely reactionary. They must always be. Anyway, we do have to go to a break because we're about to get cut off on the recording again. Um, so I'm going to stop and then we can start again. Anyway, I don't know. I I think politics is so overdone these days. It feels like it's the only thing people talk about. But um, yeah, so you're still in Houston. Like you haven't moved since we last recorded i don't think because it's been you've been in houston for how many years now four wow that really doesn't seem long enough it seems like you moved out of california like i'll dude covid man covid put like the world into <laughs> slow motion well, i'm yeah. glad i experienced covid here in houston and not in uh <laughs> California. Um, California. Now we still had to wear, it was still mandated to wear masks in public places for a long time. But um, I don't know. In California, I don't know if I would have been able to do that year of jujitsu or anything like that. Yeah, that's probably true. Are you still doing jujitsu? No, I can't afford it. Oh, man. So I have not been doing anything. Um, I am really considering going to this american ninja warrior gym near me um do it yeah i kind of want because for years i've been wanting to do something like that but uh yeah the jujitsu gym is just it was just way too much and i was like when i especially when i'm trying to fast track paying off my car i just couldn't justify it yeah well wait did do you still have because i i advised you in case people listeners don't know i'm a devotee of heavy bag workouts, like with 
gloves and punching and kicking and stuff. Do you still have that uh, the Omniflex bag? I I do have it. I haven't used it enough, frankly, but uh, I do have it. Well, did you um, you hurt yourself on it, right? Um, is that right? Yeah, but th- but that might have been just like you know whatever. This is just the initial pains and um, so and maybe I was just using in proper form, so I could probably still do it. Do you do you wrap? Or do you, what, what did you use to cover your hands? Well, wrap, I don't know. I, I actually got boxing gloves. Okay. But see, because I, here's the thing. I, part of the, why I recommend you get that bag is you really shouldn't need gloves for that bag. Cause that bag is just foam. It's not even a bag. It's, it's like a, like, I mean, you can go look this up if you don't know what we're talking about, but an Omniflex, Omniflex bag is, I think one of the best options for people that just don't have that much space because like a, a traditional weighted heavy bag, because I have that bag and I have a hundred pound bag that's, that's on a stand and stuff out in the front, but um, those take up space. Like you have to like drill into the ceiling or come up with another stand or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, I have a friend who had a version of this. Um, yeah. Cause this bag, it's just, it has a weighted, you fill it with water or sand or whatever it has this weighted um, base and the bag is sort of standing up on it and it, it has give, it, it swings around. I had a, I have a friend who has a cheaper version, like a $50 version. Um, and I can definitely tell the difference in quality between that one and this, this like $150, $200 one that we have. Um, is your friends was, the one that is just, does it bounce on like a spring? It, it kind of, it didn't really have any give at all. It just sort of, when you punch it, the whole thing moves. <laughs> right. That's um, the problem with those. Yeah. They, they actually, they have versions that are weighted like so heavily that they won't move, but those are really expensive and they're basically creating the same space problem that the other kind is. Mm-hmm. So that's why I recommended you do the Omniflex one because, because it's, it, it bounces, it's on that spring. Yeah it doesn't really move if you just have the base weighted and it's not that difficult to like push it in the corner or yep. whatever. I think it's, I think it's awesome. Um, gives a great workout. It doesn't give the same kind of workout. Like it's not doing the same kind of uh, stuff to your arms, but what's so do you not do it? Cause you don't like it or like, what's the deal? You just got out of the habit. Uh, lazy. You're just lazy. <laughs> Yeah, these past few months, I've definitely been losing my habits. Um, I has I got into some pretty strict um, habits, and I I got myself pretty tight. My body, I got my body pretty tight. Um, now I'm not saying that I looked like an Instagram model. You know, those people look ridiculous. Um, but <laughs> lost a lot of weight. I could see my ab muscles. I you know I was pretty strict. But these past few months, I've like slowly kind of been losing some of my strictness with keeping up with my workouts and also my, my diet. So I'm not quite as, I'm not fat or anything like that. You just saw me a few months ago. Um, but I'm not quite where I used to be. And part of that's fine because I was being really strict to get myself to a certain point. And that's not like a way to live. Um, you know, so I'm not going to do that, but I also need to be more careful. Yeah. 
Um, well, and this is the thing that I keep coming back to because, I mean, I think you figured this out too, is that for those of us that obsess about our weight, exercise really doesn't help that much. Like it's mostly diet. <laughs> like I think exercise, unless your exercise is like so much and so strenuous that you're basically burning like 2000 calories or something like you're just exercise is just not going to help you with weight management that much. I think it helps well, building muscle. So if you're doing like stuff that's building muscle, that can help long-term, especially, but getting into a calorie deficit, most of that stuff is actually based on what you eat. Yeah. I mean, working out, people generally kind of overestimate how much energy they're burning from working out and generally underestimate how much they're eating. Yes. Um, yes. So that's kind of the problem, but uh, it's, well, and I, I've, there's, there's fitness people that I listen to who have PhDs and, you know, scientific fields and stuff, but they, uh, there's one guy who's a fan of saying, Hey, those calorie burning calculators on your treadmill or on your Apple watch or on your whatever, those aren't very accurate. <laughs> um, so don't trust those. They're pretty accurate with steps, but they're not very accurate with how much energy are you burning? So like, don't trust those. Yeah. Well, and this is okay. So this is what I realized now we're just talking about health stuff, but what I realized recently was it, I hate counting calories, mm -hmm. but it's easiest to count calories. This is, this is the reason why I think I, I hate it because I'll be doing really good. And then I'll come up to something that I don't know how much, I don't know what's in it because I yeah. ate out or whatever. And I'm like, ah, crap. I don't know. I don't know how to account for this. And yep. so then I just give up for like a couple of days, <laughs> which is so stupid. But like, if you come up with some stuff that you kind of genuinely know, like there's this one guy called the bioengineer on YouTube. He's an English dude. He's in really good shape. Um, his advice tends to be, his videos are a little bit longer and his advice tends to be like, I think pretty nuanced. It's never just like, uh, you know, like a lot of those YouTube things, it's like, do this one thing every morning to lose weight. And if you, if you go watch his, like a whole video of his, he's like, yeah, this Wait, is basically the what? Bioneer? The Bioneer. I yeah. I, I've listened to his videos. Yeah. And, um, he, I don't think any of the stuff he does is like steroid based. Like I think he's all natural because uh, he's not that big and, yeah. um, but he's in very good shape, but like he, he was saying something about how he doesn't really intermittent fasting. He doesn't really count calories, but he also kind of does both. So like, right. doesn't really have breakfast and usually his lunch is like a tuna fish sandwich or something like that. <laughs> and so then, which when I heard that, I was horrified because I was like, he eats bread. And, um, and then, cause that's just bread is just totally on the outs now. And then he's like, and for dinner, that means I can basically eat a thousand calories and I'm not really, I'm just not really thinking about it. So I do, I do intermittent fast kind of, cause I don't, I really only eat two meals and 
he might even have some something small for breakfast, but it's not much. So up until dinner, he's only had like maybe 400, maybe 500 calories, depending on like what he's putting in his tuna fish sandwich. Like you can make tuna fish for, you can make a tuna fish sandwich that's like 200 calories, you know, like it. You, and it you can, can make be, a breakfast burrito that's that much or less. That's what I've been doing. Yeah. And, um, and he's like, and then, you know, I'm basically only, I'm, can, you know, I can consume 1200 calories for dinner and I'm, that's putting him well under probably 2000. And for someone with his amount of muscles, he, he could probably be, my guess is he could probably be consuming like 3000 a day and I gain anything. So I don't know, maybe he is eating more stuff some other time, but in any case, it's just really obvious. It's mostly diet. Wait, so what's your breakfast? What what, what do you do for breakfast now? Um, well, mostly I've been eating protein bars. It's really boring, but um, it's just it's so, so easy. Yeah. It's so easy. Just open it up and eat it. Now, you know, it's even the, easier not having what? breakfast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I cannot handle that, dude. I tried. Um, but the so I actually like the protein bars that I eat. But yes, generally protein bars are not very good tasting um, and they can be pricey. So there's that. But um, I need to find some normal, some new kind of like normal meals that I make because you remember how I was making that stew um, or chili, whatever you called it before. It basically um, was chili. You were yeah. like, this is what I do. And I I'm done. Like, yeah, that's chili. Like I can't. You- I- yeah, I just can't handle it anymore. I'm like, okay, I don't want this anymore. So <laughs> I got to think about what else to make. Um, there are these kind of breakfast burritos that I've been making. Um, but uh, yeah, I need to think of another one or two types of meals to I make. Made, I made low-carb Taco Bell for mm-hmm. dinner. I mean, you can make it at home for pretty cheap. Like they have the – you can go get the seasoning from Walmart and the sauce. They sell most stores. And you just grill up some ground beef and you get low carb tortillas and it's not even that many calories really. Yeah. For me, I would just, um, be like, I went through a few months of really closely tracking, um, how much I was eating. I don't recommend everybody track their calories uh, for some people. That's probably not even mentally healthy, but, um, it, and it can be stressful for the reasons that Aaron described. But um, that's what I was doing, and that's when I got myself to my lowest weight, but I'm not going to do that too much anymore. I want to pay a bit of attention, um, sort of like the Bioneer guy, but I haven't been paying enough attention lately. There's another fitness person on YouTube. Um, I'm guessing her name is Patty because uh, she goes by Lean Beef Patty on YouTube, <laughs> um, and her physique is incredible. Like, she's not... You know how bodybuilders Wait, or the, what's, on, what's her name? Lean Beef Patty. Lean Beef Patty. Um, and you know how um, those people who would do bodybuilding competitions, you know how they look like not at all like natural human beings at all, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether they're male or female. Yeah, they're, um, they're roided out freaks. Yeah. So she actually looks like she looks kind of like strong and muscular, but like it's a natural physique. You know, um, she looks like an anime character. I'm looking. Well, now. it's probably oh, you're probably seeing her famous pictures. Um, and but she doesn't look like she's doing anything. I women with six packs freak me out because that is 
<laughs> that's really difficult. Yes, it is difficult. Um, now she she does have some pictures that I think got her a little bit famous because they have a bit of an anime "Step on Me, Mommy" type vibe. Um, <laughs> but, I don't know. I don't get that reference. Ah, uh, whatever. But she looks completely natural. You're right. Right, but I think she is natural, and she um, a lot of the way she looks in her pictures are going to be is going to be because of angles and lighting and stuff like that. It's, it's not necessarily that she'll look exactly like that if you see her in real life, but she has a video. Um, it's sort of like when I said I could see my abs or my six pack mm-hmm. or um, like part of that's going to be lighting and how I'm flexing them. Like if I was just standing normally and I had my shirt off and you Aaron saw me, I don't know that my abs would have been too visible or visible at all. <laughs> but what was I anyway, the reason that I brought this girl up is because she has a video where she kind of talks about like her tracking calories. Um, and she's like, it's basically kind of the she kind of does it kind of doesn't. <laughs> and while she was doing that video, she was eating McDonald's and said, I'm probably not going to track this. <laughs> so, um, well, someone who's isn't in good shape as she is kind of doesn't need to right really i mean i don't know i understand keeping very meticulous track of calories if you willingly decided to be part of some kind of bodybuilding competition that's coming up in a few months but in general you probably don't need to count very like for example gum some of those gums that you can chew on have like five calories per do you really need to count that no um those things that say that they are zero calories are probably not actually zero calories. So there are some fitness people I follow who say you need to count that as like five calories or whatever. Why do you really need to do that? No, I don't think so. No, um, and I, I know that know. there's going to be people. I, I know there's going to be people who listen to this and are going to go. It's not about calories. It's about insulin. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Um, well, this is the thing. So. I do tend, I tend to feel better when I avoid carbs. Right. Yeah. But what I have actually found recently that I, that I'm doing is, and this really seems to work for me. And I just, I don't really know how else to explain this, but if I start my day, cause for a long time I've been skipping breakfast and that was how I lost. I used to be very overweight and now I'm just, I'm like 20 pounds overweight now. Um, and the way I lost about 60, 70 pounds was basically intermittent fasting. I was only eating once a day and I ate whatever I wanted. Um, and a consistent daily workout basically. And it really didn't take me that long. I think it took me about six months to lose about 70 pounds that way. Um, but then stress and different things over the last couple of years uh, have kind of, I don't know exactly what happened, but I just couldn't really, I couldn't make it through the day without eating. Like I started feeling kind of fatigued and actually kind of needing something. And that got me off base. And anyway, there's just been a lot of changes, but what I've noticed recently is if I, if I do have breakfast, it's um what I'll what I'll do 
is uh, like I can't do coffee anymore because I have really bad acid problems now. Um, but I'll do tea and some broth actually, or even like a little bit of soup, like, cause I was really sick last month. And so I was drinking a lot of, um, chicken noodle soup and I almost, I, I really generally try to avoid carbs, but chicken noodle soup is so low in calories overall. And there, there is a correlation between the two. If you're, you know, if you're eliminating carbs, depends. I mean, if you're replacing it with a ton of high fat stuff, which is what keto actually says to do, you aren't eliminating calories that much, but like low carb tortillas have less calories in them overall right. than regular tortillas. And um, so if you're, Anyway, so I just, I, I was like, oh man, I, I could basically live off of chicken noodle and while I'm sick and I'm not really consuming that many calories, even if I do eat some bread or something with it, I can actually have a bunch of like pretty light, um, light calorie meals that actually have a lot of carbs that in general, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't eat. But I, what I found was starting my day off with like a little bit, and I varied it a little bit. Sometimes it would be chicken noodles. Sometimes it would be just like a little thing of bouillon or something like that. But if I started my, if my, if my breakfast was some caffeine and I guess there's protein in that soup, but just like, there's something about starting the day with a bowl of soup. It's very filling and it's low in calorie. Mm -hmm. And then I would have like a tuna fish sandwich or something, or maybe some eggs or something for lunch and I'm fine. And then for dinner, I have like, sometimes I'll have a whole pound of ground beef because my wife doesn't, we just, we have very different dietary needs right now. Like a lot of stuff upsets her stomach and it's this constant problem for her to trying to figure out what's, what's bothering her. And it's really frustrating. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, I'll just, just, yeah, I just do like, so I'm focusing on trying to get protein. So my first meal is this soup caffeine combo. And then my second is trying to be protein based. So it's usually like eggs or tuna fish or something. And then my mm -hmm. last meal is really basically just protein. And I'm basically fine. I don't have like weird cravings for the most part. If I, if I do that. And I think this is the thing that I have learned and I'm not in super great shape. So I can't, I can't say that this is going to work for everybody, but fad diets come and go. People try different things and you find one thing works one year because of whatever. And then your body either gets used to it or I, I don't know, you get too stressed out or something changes and what was what worked before is not working now. Just try stuff, you know, try different things. And but do not believe, because I just don't think that this is true. Do not believe that there is some kind of magic solution. So, like just eliminating carbohydrates. Right. I guess that probably works for some people. It's a really great way to manage insulin. I mean, if you're just not eating any sugar you really don't have a big problem with that stuff. So 
that can be a pretty good solution, I think, for diabetes. But if you're someone who has trouble, and a lot of people, this is something it took me a long time to realize too. A lot of people just don't have that much difficulty with food management. Unless you live in a place like the South where everyone is super obese <laughs> and they're just eating, eh. they're consuming like four or 5,000 calories a day completely yeah. unnecessarily. Unless you're living like that, most people don't. And it's not just the South. People in the Midwest do it too. Australians have had a big problem with this too, actually. Um, and it, it just seems like like Asians, like Asians in general consume like lots of rice and noodles. And they don't, <laughs> uh, what? Yeah, there was a tweet that I saw where somebody was like sort of making fun of Americans. And going, uh, well, Americans will live in Europe for a few months and lose 15, pound, 15 pounds because they were spending all their time walking to their destinations instead of driving. And they'll convince themselves that it's because our food lacks some chemical or something like that. Yeah. Um, but And I know that we said that exercise overall isn't going to have as much of an effect as your diet on weight loss and stuff, but there is something to, you know, actually moving around. Um, whereas a lot of us are either driving or sitting in our offices and driving requires sitting down. Um, well, even standing for work burns like another hundred calories or something extra a day. And like yeah. it, all of those little things that will add up and that could easily put you in a calorie deficit. But yeah, that's, you are correct though, that there are options. That's why I don't really care for it when people go like, 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 okay. So stuff like keto, stuff like intermittent fasting, those are completely legitimate. There's nothing wrong with doing them. What I hate is when people treat them as like the magical solution for everybody. Yeah. Um, because not everybody reacts to eating low carb the same like somebody like you I actually don't even know if you like it <laughs> somebody like you might be fine with it but then there are other people who are like oh my god I can't have carbs and the thing about diets is that if you don't like the diet your you're willpower, not gonna stick to it yeah your willpower can only get you so far yeah so um and, and, and if intermittent fasting works for you then great but for me I did it for a month now I didn't do the whole warrior diet thing for a month um I did like I wouldn't eat until noon for a month. And I heard people online say after a week, maybe two, you'll feel fine. Nope. Every freaking day of that month, I was like starving from 7 a.m. to 12 p.m. Um, and I was like, I'm done. Um, but some people, they swear by it. And that's fine. I just don't like it when people treat these things as universal um, instead of as options. Well, I yeah. And I think I think your experience with that was rare. It was like kind of weird mm -hmm. um most people i think do i never had a problem with it like i just did it and i was fine and actually it helped me i felt better emotionally like just like i, I felt mm -hmm. like i had more mental clarity i felt less sluggish um i loved it i can't really do it anymore i don't totally <laughs> understand why it just it seems like it has some kind of negative impact I don't know if I eat too much at night or what, but it has some kind of negative impact on like my acid levels or something, but it, it was something I really needed to help me kind of, I think I had a, I think I always kind of had an 
unhealthy relationship with food. Thankfully, it hasn't done to me what it done what it's done to a lot of people. But um, it you know it was it was a good thing, and I think from a Christian perspective too. Someone said some someone. This is one of the few times I've seen something on Facebook where I was just like, oh, that was that's actually kind of an interesting point. So someone was talking about how people who are in better shape actually are more self-forgetful about their physical appearance. Interesting. And I think hmm. that can be true. I think it should be true. Like it if you, if you're in the right physical condition, hmm. what were you going to say? Well, it, de- it probably depends on um, like if they are, if they are fitter, I guess. And it's not like, a mental goal of theirs every day is just because of how they live, then maybe that's true. Um, I think that if it's people who like it is, it is like a, a goal and a constant thought in their head to try to get fit or to stay fit or whatever, then they are probably more self-conscious, but um, so I would need to know what kind of uh, people are talking like I, I like I said, I follow a lot of kind of fitness people, and they often say that um, a lot of times when you make it your goal to get really fit, um, you actually start becoming more self conscious and more critical of yourself than you were um, before. Um, but I can certainly see it being the case if it's people who um, are in pretty good shape, but it's just because they just happen to be living the right way. They're not really thinking about it. They're not really trying to. Um, do anything special? I don't know. Yeah, and I think this is this is I think what it kind of opened for me. So like you know, I live in California. California is the opposite of Texas. I noticed in, in terms of like shut up, in terms of like obesity and stuff like that, right? So we have the cult of health here, and this is something I didn't really realize for a long time growing up. But there is this sort of because I lived on on the West coast and the Philippines and stuff where it wasn't as big a problem, but especially in the South and the Midwest, I think you do tend to see this tendency of Christians to think that they're being humble by being in bad shape. And Mm -hmm. there's, there's sort of this like, because California takes it to the opposite extreme. Right. So like, especially in SoCal, there's this worship, and it, it's not woke anymore, which is funny, but like back in the day, it was like, you know, you wanted to be in as good a shape as possible. And I think there were other things connected to that, like sex positive culture and things like that. And that's actually probably one of the reasons why I think, you know, the old, the old adage, like follow the money. Yeah. I think one of the things too, now that you can do is follow the sex. So like, if you, <laughs> I like that. If, uh, if you have this culture where it's all about like having as much sex as possible and being super sex positive, then, you know, they're going to be obsessed with health generally, but that is not the case anymore. And now there's a lot of sex positivity in liberal enclaves that is connected to like not being in great shape. And so you, you have these weird these things get deconstructed and reconstructed all the time. But the idea that being grossly overweight 
is somehow more Christian is completely absurd. And that really, I've even, what? Um, I've even seen Anthony Bradley. Um, Anthony Bradley, he's an interesting follow on Twitter. He can, he definitely has areas where he, I think he can be annoying, but he has other areas where he's good. Um, but he actually had a tweet where he said he was talking to somebody who I guess used to do missions or ministry in Israel. Mm-hmm. And he said that the, um, a lot of Jewish folks there just, um, or maybe the leadership, I don't know, the religious leadership will just will not listen to you if you're overweight. <laughs> and it's just, um, that's actually a situation where being, if that's true. Um, now, obviously, should they dismiss you because you're overweight? I wouldn't, I, I don't think so. But um, that would actually be a situation where being overweight would get in the way of being able to um effectively minister in a certain area of the world yeah that was interesting do you know who john frame is yes so is he he still still... still alive (laughs) i (laughs) so i thought i thought i heard that maybe his wife died but i don't know well like back in the day yeah i don't know if he's still alive back in the day somebody pointed out to me a close friend pointed out to me who loved john frame said he has gotten so unbelievably fat um and i don't know why that is like sometimes it's a glandular thing i think it's i think that's pretty rare my guess is i think it's because he was living in florida and he just got really big and i was listening to some lectures he was doing at like rts on itunes u or something and it was difficult to listen to him because you could tell he could barely breathe. Like, Mm. I'm not kidding. He sounded sort of asthmatic, but in that way where you can tell this guy's really overweight. And I know that that's mean, but it's true. Sorry about all the body shaming right now, everybody. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. This is the point I was trying to get to was like, if, if you, if you are healthy, if you're in a healthy plate, you're getting, the correct amount of exercise you're eating relatively healthy food that is actually replenishing and stuff like that you're unless you've got some kind of psychological thing going on and i know people like this you're you tend to be more humble and more self-forgetful you're not i i look at myself in the mirror the most when i feel fat because i'm trying to figure out does this shirt how is this shirt? How fat is this shirt making me look? Hmm. Sure. It's not really what's making me fat. I'm my fat body. So it's making me feel fat, but like, I think there is a tendency to do that. And like, so in places that struggle with obesity, they've kind of made this social compact where they're not going to, they're just not going to worry about this that much and nobody's going to care. Right. But everyone's struggling with diabetes and stuff. And then in California, I think, the more modern California cliche has been much the opposite. Like you're a bad person if you're overweight, which has changed, like we pointed out, but um, like you should be taking care of yourself. And there, there has been this tendency. It, it can, it can all be bad, but I just thought that was interesting. And what, he, what that comment made, that comment made sense to me. It was like, I wouldn't be worried about my physical appearance as much if I was taking better care of myself. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, so that does lead to self-forgetfulness and positive things in my life. And I just think that, you know, human sin, it takes anything good and it can make it bad. But um, yeah. Anyway, yep. I think you and I both have body issue stuff. Like, would you say that you, you feel like amongst your male friends, you have tended to be more concerned about that than most, or is that, is that more of a recent thing? Cause as long as I've been your friend, you've commented on it a lot. Um, I, yeah, probably. Well, maybe not all of them, but I think, um, especially here, I've definitely been more concerned about that. Um, it's moving to the south. You mean? Yeah. Well, now you, you I I gained grew up in the south too. Uh, Midwest. Oh um, yeah. Okay. But no. Uh, but um, I actually gained a lot more weight when I moved here too. Oh okay. Um, I was when I first moved in California, I was in the one thirties pounds. Um, when I started working out, I got up to the one fifties. Um. Because I got stronger, but I also ate a lot more. <laughs> so yeah. there was that issue. Um, but when I moved here to Texas, I eventually got to the point where I was in the 180s. Um, and then that I kind of was like, that seems, that seems, wait, you were in the, you were in the 180s in like a bad way. Yes. I, I was not working out. Okay. <laughs> I was like, um, that seems huge for you. <laughs> no yeah. Offense. But I, I think I eventually balanced out of like the low 170s. Um, But then when I decided to just start focusing on it, well, some things just sort of happened. But then I and and I eventually started to focus on it. Then I got down to like the 140s and then 133, I think, was the lightest that I got this year. Um, I haven't weighed myself lately, so I don't know. I'm probably in the 140s right now, but um, it's it's definitely something I've worried about more than a lot of friends and. I kind of want to not worry about it so much, but um, I always fear that, oh, if I don't worry about it, then I'm just going to let it go. Um, And I'm going to go a direction I don't want to go. So, Well, and this is the weird thing about the time we live in, right? Because there's so much cheap, high calorie foods available. Yep. That it's dangerous. And it's it's the opposite of the way humans used to be. It used to be like, and we don't or can't walk anywhere. Um, yeah. 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 That's something you complain about a lot on social media is the yes. how unwalkable. And that's, I guess that really is kind of a problem with the modern South because car culture is so dominant and there's like, there's no public transportation really in the right. South outside of like Uber and Lyft. Right. I mean, they don't have. Yeah, I mean, there's not much going on. Um, maybe if you're in like the inner city, Houston, maybe there's something. But I've I've been there. It's uh, there's some bike lanes, I guess. But the bike lanes here in American cities tend to be, eh. I don't really want to bike on those. Um, there's a YouTube channel I've been listening to, and not just bikes is what it's called. Um, and it's this guy. He's a Canadian, but he's lived all over the world, and he lives in Amsterdam now. Um. And it's his channel that kind of made me start thinking about this stuff. Um, 
but I actually need to probably stop listening to his channel because I'm trying to exp- I'm trying to um, foster gratitude and listening <laughs> to his channel makes me not very grateful for where I live. But um, the and there's a lot to be grateful for and where I live because um, you're but, currently you're currently doing a gratitude challenge for Thanksgiving month. Yeah, well, I'll try to be I'll try to say a less depressing gratitude things i guess um as the weeks go on like today was less depressing salted butter butter in general is good but salted butter oh that's good stuff man all right we're we're about to get to another break um so i'm going to go ahead and stop the recording all right anyway so we were just anyway the the, you the, the point that you're saying or the thing that you said was that um it's very easy to access very unhealthy foods and yeah it is and it's also relatively cheap and often these foods are designed to make us want more and more and more and more and more so well and literally yeah. like the impulse buy line at the grocery store i mean you can get like you can buy like 2000 calories in terms of like, you know, uh, like a Kit Kat and a payday and Reese's, you can get that for like four bucks. <laughs> yep. Like right as you're checking out, that's like nothing. And it's essentially empty calories. I guess, I don't know. I guess the peanut butter in like a Reese's is going to have some good protein in it. Maybe. I don't really know. I don't know what that kind of peanut butter, if that's worth putting in your body, but like probably not. Yeah, it's just, it's not that, this is the thing we have in America, our, our homeless are obese. Like that's our homeless struggle with obesity. That's crazy, (laughs) you know? And anyway, so just from a Christian perspective, you really, you do need to be worried about both. Like you cannot be, I, I think having the kind of like i don't think arnold schwarzenegger is a great christian moral exemplar of health right and not just because he's doing steroids but because like everything about his career in a lot of ways was built around you know him being this like his religion was bodybuilding really Mm -hmm. you know and i'm not saying that you you can't be a christian and do that stuff but it it cannot be Anything can be idolatrous. And so you just, you have to guard your heart. If that's what you're doing, you know, if you're a professional, I think you can probably be an MMA fighter and be a Christian, but I think there, there are MMA fighters that, that are Christians, but like you, anything, anything you do, no matter what it is, I mean, pastoring can be a person's like true religion. Like, I think we see this with, people like uh who who was that um who was that female pastor that like really publicly left her husband a few years back and talked about like how bad their sex life was do you remember this uh i don't think so it wasn't jen hatmaker was it let's look up this hatmaker woman i can't remember what jen hatmaker's deal was i think she's i don't think that that was who was uh, it? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I couldn't tell you. 
anyway, I don't think it is Jen. I think Jen Hatmakers. There's something else that's going on. You with sure, her. it's not the shoemaker. The shoemaker. Sorry, stupid joke. <laughs> no, the hatmakers are something. There's something else going on with them. They're like, are they? Quit? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Forget the hatmaker name. Anyway, they were controversial for some other thing. But there was this lady. I cannot. I maybe she's just fallen out of favor now. But. Yeah, she she left her husband very publicly and talked about how bad their sex life was. And I think the only reason I even knew about this was because Al Mohler talked about it on his podcast. And he was like, this is kind of disgusting that like if if a if a man acted this way, huh. he would not be celebrated. OK, time to Google woman pastor who left her husband because of bad sex life. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to Google that. That's going to change your Facebook ads, probably. Uh yeah. Anyway, the point I was trying to make was that like I think that it, really anything can can become the main thing in your life from a Christian perspective and it's not healthy. And so like for someone like that, I think personal liberation and she probably didn't think of herself as woke at the time or whatever, but it's just like, this is the thing that's most dangerous in modern American society is me becoming religion. Like it becoming all about me and really a kind of religion of narcissism. And that's, I think what makes so many Americans deeply unhappy. My cat is now deeply unhappy because hmm. all she can think about is food. She's a growing little kitten. Anyway, I don't know. I only said that because she's meowing like crazy now, but um, yeah, I don't know, dude. It's just, I'm, I'm surprised. I, I've been surprised at, cause my divorce was really painful, but because I didn't really fight it, I, I wasn't super worried about me in the whole thing. I wasn't really like, I wasn't freaking out about oh, how is this going to affect me? How is this going to be like, I mean, that was when it was most painful was when I was most focused on like how embarrassing it was to get divorced, you know, being left by somebody. That's when it was most painful. But God has really blessed me in a lot of ways, not just in spite of it, but kind of because of it. Like this sounds bad, I think, to a lot of Christians, but like it was good for me that my marriage ended. Like what would it would have been better is if our marriage had, if we had both worked on it and it had gotten better over time, that would have been better. Yes, I agree. That is not what happened. And I think that there were a lot of bad things in my first marriage that are, they're not a part of my life anymore. They are still a part of me. And so there's still things that I need to work on, but yeah. It's just that that is, I, that is the source of so much pain. And I think a, a lot of religions actually do get at this. Buddhism is actually pretty good at this in some ways more so than, than Christianity. Cause it's Buddhism is kind of all about the negation of the self and Christianity is actually, I, I it's a much more balanced 
worldview because it's really about the proper orientation of the self to the cosmos, to the people around you, to God. Um, that's what makes it so difficult. But like, there, there's just so much. It's just this all this culture of me, and I think you can you can do that by being super overweight. You know, like you can just, it's all about what I want to taste in my mouth right now, or you can do that mm -hmm. by being incredibly healthy because you just, you, you can't live with yourself if you're not a certain weight or whatever. Those are all essentially forms of pride. Um, you know, like even thinking, thinking so lowly of yourself that you should be, and you know, you should have bad health which I don't think is the way a lot of those people will explain it, but I do think that is kind of what is happening. It's like, it is more humble to just kind of let your body go. I don't know. If, is that really honoring to God? It seems like it's probably not. <laughs> probably not. I've seen people. Um, I mean, I definitely understand the uh, problem with the kind of uh, diet or fitness culture where, um, your physical appearance is highly valued and there's all these body sort of, you get mental issues with your body. So I, I get the concerns about all that stuff. And there are also unhealthy ways to, you know, lose weight and unhealthy ways to be strong looking and all that kind of stuff too. So there's all those kinds of issues, but, um, and people often quote that passage in the Bible where Paul says, uh, you know, like physical fitness is of little worth or whatever. Um, and kind of use that as a, as kind of an end all be all QED passage on, um, fitness, but like, I don't know what they're saying we should do instead. I don't think well, they're arguing. Being okay. But overweight. Paul, yeah, that's the thing though. Paul's culture doesn't have a problem with diabetes. <laughs> right. I don't so. think because <laughs> so these people who do this, I don't think that they're therefore arguing you should be overweight, but I don't know what they're arguing for exactly. Um, I think Paul's probably arguing against something well, like the Olympian ideal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm talking about yeah. I, I I'm talking about people when they quote Paul. Oh or, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Or when they quote Paul or vilify the kind of fitness uh, focus, and I get where they're coming from, but also I don't. I don't think that they're full on going, well, we should all be overweight because I'm sure that they, well, I don't know because people, well, I there's think... a, there's a real cult of health. I mean, and yeah, I think but that's, that's a real thing. When I think about the fact that I think Christians in general would say that, you know, over indulgence um, is bad. However, mm -hmm. What do we often do at churches? Huge potlucks. <laughs> and we have um, plenty of overweight people. And that's and overweight people are just as much human beings as everybody else. So don't take me to be saying anything like I don't think Southerners got fat from potlucks. Now, I might be wrong, but my guess is it was probably what they ate at home and on the daily. Like, I don't eh, think true. that like, right you know, a tuna noodle casserole on Sunday 
This is I I noticed that I eat less around other people, especially at celebratory. I'm the opposite. Really? I what don't do you, stop when you're around other people. Yeah. So the reason that I was able to do what I could do and stay lean is because I control my environment. But when I'm oh. with people at a restaurant or at their house or whatever or at church, I have no self control at all. Huh. <laughs> so yep. But you are the opposite, obviously. So well, and especially if it's like a communal, if the point is like a celebratory communal meal. I don't know. I definitely have done it. Like, especially when I used to be really big. Um, I remember this one day, one day where I realized I was eating way more food than everyone else was at the party because my ex-wife was embarrassed. And she said, she's like, really, you don't need to eat a third hamburger or whatever it was. And she almost never did that kind of thing. But I was just like, I was like, wow, everybody else just sort of ate a normal amount of food. And I am like, I am like kind of gorging and I'm doing it like in front of people. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't know. So I, so I'm a glutton <laughs> when I'm in the right circumstance. Yeah. Kind of, I guess. I mean, sort of like the way some people probably can't control how much they drink when they're socially drinking. Hmm, right, right. All right. Well, let's make this the last, the last segment. Cause I, I actually have some other stuff I have to do today. I didn't realize we'd wind up talking this long. That's great, but let's do recommendations. So what have you been reading, listening to watching? What do you recommend? Well, I'm playing God of War Ragnarok right now. So but I'm sure everybody already knows about that one. Um, well, maybe not everybody who listens to this. But is it hey. is it all one franchise at this point, or did it get rebooted with the last God of War? Because now it's like Norse themed. Uh, yeah. So the way it kind of is 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 sort of a reboot, but it is all canonical. Like it, like the the he's new the God same of, character. It's Kratos the same the whole time. Yes, he's the same character. It just takes place after the initial three games. He, um, you know, I think everybody probably knows by now that he, like, I think he massacred all the Greek gods by the end of the third game. So the... I don't remember doing that at the end of that game, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but in the to- God of War 2018 that just came out, it's like sort of a, a reboot where the gameplay style is different, but it takes place like after all that um, Kratos is this a third, found a new home. It's a third person perspective now, right? Instead of the sort of fixed camera. Yes. It used to be like behind the shoulder type kind of thing. Yeah. So but, you have more direct control over. Yeah. So it is like a continuation. So if you play the original trilogy, it's like the new God of War stuff is a sequel to that. Um, yeah. Okay. And did you like the last one? Oh yeah, it's really good. How far are you in this one? Well, I don't really even know how long it's going to be, so I can't really say how far I am. But um, I've played several hours so far. The thing about the um, recent God of War games is that they use some clever tricks here and there, but it's all supposed to be one one camera shot. Like there is no cuts. You know, the camera from cutscene to gameplay and all that. It's just one camera shot. So it makes it difficult to kind of find a stopping place. You always feel like keeping going. 
like it's a movie. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, huh. And and like I said, there's some clever tricks that they probably use to. So maybe it's not technically one camera shot because um, there are some times where you walk through a door and it's like a bright light and then it fades away. And so maybe there's a trick in there, but because it's one, it's supposed to, it presents itself as one camera shot from the beginning to the end. Um, it's going to be kind of hard to just go, okay, I'm going to stop here. These, this episode is done. Nope. I want to, I got to keep the movie going. Um, but yeah, it's, but it's a well-acted game to, um, seeing the story of Kratos and his son, is I like I'm a sucker for kind of parent child type stories and mm. the gameplay is brutal. So yeah. Does it feel anything like Last of Us? Hmm. Um yeah, so The Last of Us and and uh, God of War are both kind of the big triple A cinematic type PlayStation Sony PlayStation experiences. Um they're both on that same level. Hmm. So yeah, there is a, there is some sense in which it feels that way. They're doing a Last of Us movie now, aren't they? I thought it was a series. Is it a series? I think so. Yeah. And it's like if I remember correctly, wait, what's it going to be on? Oh, HBO. Oh, I forget. I just I know I saw a trailer, and I just remember thinking this is the most slavish I have ever seen an adaptation be to the original visually like huh. oh yeah the even the zombies or whatever they are looked exactly the same like I, the main characters don't look that similar um right but i can't even remember who the actors are anyway i'm not we'll super s- excited about that we'll see if they adapt the very controversial second game <laughs> yeah have you played that one no i didn't play the second game i, I haven't played it yet either yeah, I, so I've seen I've seen enough about the game to where like I don't think that I can mentally handle how dark it is. Um so, yeah. Okay, well, are you reading anything? No. Okay, what are you watching? Nothing. Really? I watched one episode of Andor and I hear it's good, but Oh, okay. Did you I, like I haven't the watched anything else. Uh, yeah, okay. I saw two episodes of the cyberpunk anime. Is that good? And th- sure. <laughs> um, I hear it's good. And it was a good two episodes, but I haven't really played the game yet. Um, and right. I don't think I don't think Keanu Reeves is going to be in it. So. <laughs> so the only the only thing you're recommending to listeners is the new new God of War. Yes. OK. You're not listening to any podcasts or anything? I mean, I listen to things. Um, but I don't know if I have anything special to... Like uh, earlier, I mentioned the Not Just Bikes YouTube channel. I kind of recommend that for thoughts on um, city that, design and walkability and all I can all that. think of now that you've said Not Just Bikes, all I can think of is Tom Segura talking about why he loves to scream bikes at bike shops. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, bikes. <laughs> I mean, cause I got back into the habit of playing Elden ring and I was, co- and I've been co-oping with a friend of mine that I live far away from and helping him out. So, um, mostly I just been playing games. 
Amsegur is so funny, but he is so filthy. Like he's one of those people. I just, I, I can't really recommend him, but he's so funny. Anyway, Elden Ring. What is Elden Ring? This was a big thing. Like what? Like six months ago. Yeah. Um, it's a game. It's from software's new game from software being the people who made, you know, the dark souls and Bloodborne and Sekiro games. So it's that style. Yeah. It's that style, but it's open world. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, it's very good. The kind of story backdrop lore stuff was actually made by George R. R. Martin. Oh, wow. Um, so his touch is in it. I don't think that he wrote the actual dialogue because I highly doubt that he knows how to write video, you know, dialogue for video games. He probably is more the novel kind of guy, judging mm. by the fact that he has multiple novels. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's very good. Okay. Um, I can not recommend something. So, <laughs> uh, Black Adam was kind of terrible. Oh, I've um, heard different things, but yeah, it was enjoyable. I mean, this is the thing. I don't know how many times I've ever actually watched a movie that The Rock was in, where I was like, ah, oh, that was a waste of time. Right. He he's good in it. And there are good things about it. It's just that the script ultimately the script could have used another draft or two. Um, it, it could be better. The stuff that's good in it is really cool. The JSA, the justice society of America is really cool. It's also, I think confusing for non comic book fans, how it fits into whatever we're going to call. I think the Snyder verse is coming back. Um, whatever we're calling this very bizarre cinematic universe that Warner brothers and DC is still trying to make happen. Um, but, you know, actually this was what I kept thinking of the whole time is cause we're, we both like the DC animated films, right? Like you like the DC animated movies. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen any since I moved away from you, but yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I used to force you to watch them, I guess it, it's the most similar to one of those that I think I've seen in live action form. Like it really, in terms of DC films goes, it's just making no pretense that it's a DC universe movie, almost in the way that Marvel finally kind of got to that point where they were just like, yeah, these are just Marvel movies. Like we're not even like, if you watch the first Iron Man I think there's there's the sense in which like this is a normal movie, but a superhero's in it, and it is a superhero movie, but really we're just making like a movie. And then once the MCU kind of got established, they're like, yeah, these are just these are just Marvel movies. Like these are just superhero comic book movies, and we're just making them. And they mm-hmm. just feel like superhero movies. And I think DC has kind of struggled to sort of make films that sort of feel like they're situated in this ongoing marvel universe and this one was the closest i think to that while also still feeling like it wasn't because visually it feels much more like it's part of the snyderverse anyway it's worth watching i don't think it's worth watching in the theaters it's not worth paying to watch it um Mm -hmm. but it was entertaining it's just not very good uh barbarian was the is the big horror film of the year and I finally saw that and that was pretty cool. It's also very messed up and very strange, like most horror. Um, 
So yeah, I do have. I cannot. Okay, we'll, we'll probably end on this. I cannot highly. I cannot over recommend this book um, that I'm. I'm almost done with, but it's called Lords of Chaos, and it's about the uh, black metal, the 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 history of black metal in the eighties hmm. and nineties. It is utterly fascinating. It's Michael. It's there are two authors and the only one's name I can remember right now is Michael Moynihan, who's an American journalist, but it is just, and I have been fascinated by this for years since I saw the documentary till the light takes us, which I think is on Tubi right now. I love Tubi so much. Um, you <laughs> never know. You never know what's going to be on that app. Um, so sorry. When you said I love Tubi so much. There's a character in a game called Near Automata called 2B. <laughs> so I was thinking you were talking about maybe no. not, maybe don't Google her, but um, that's <laughs> what I was thinking you were talking about. Well, in any case, um, yeah. So I just, the black metal is like it, it, it started as satanic and then it became pagan. And I think what's really interesting is how the difference between those things is essentially a, a distinction without a difference. Like, and this for me is probably the most important thing I learned while listening to it is that, cause you know, me, I, you know, I think Norse mythology is really interesting and I like how like Norse stuff was incorporated into Christianity in the Scandinavian countries in a really powerful way that speaks to me very deeply, but kind of finding out, like the Northman is this Viking movie that came out this last year. And it's an amazing film, like super well-made, but it's so bleak. And like Odin isn't really a positive figure. Like he's kind of a satanic figure, even with like, even a positive figure in God of War either. Oh, really? So he's like competing with the Norse gods now. Yeah, so Kratos is in the Norse realm, and so it's the Norse gods that he's having problems with. Right. Well, I knew it was a Norse. I just didn't know if he was actually like. I didn't know if that meant he was dealing with the Norse gods. So he's 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 in a North mythological setting now. Yeah, like you know, so Tyr and Baldur and Freya and Odin yeah. and Thor—they're all in there. Although it's Fat Thor, it's not Fit Thor. It's Fat Thor. <laughs> Wait for real? Like he's, he's like yeah. when when Chris Hemsworth's in uh, but which ones is he fat in? The Infinity War and uh, oh um, no, was... he's not fat in Infinity War. Endgame. Yeah, he's fat in Endgame. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, wow, we've talked about body shaming stuff a lot on this episode. In, in any case, um, Lords of Chaos is just amazing like i don't know if any if i don't understand why this subject is so fascinating to me i guess it's just like this i think the interplay between christianity and paganism is really fascinating and how i don't know it's just it's just a really interesting worldview struggle and it's very difficult for me this is a this is like a longer conversation at this point, but anyway, those are my recommendations. 
So, all right. Anything else you want to get off your chest before we call it a call it a day? I mostly just want to eat. Yeah, I need to go make some food too. Actually, feed your cats too. All right, brothers and sisters. I guess the upshot of this rambling conversation was: take care of your bodies, love your families, don't worry too much about politics. Uh, yeah, go, go love Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that you uh, you might find him someday. Um, I think whenever I have you on, this is basically what we're gonna do. Unless there's like a specific thing we're going to talk about. We're just going to have a an old style. What do we used to call them? BS episodes? Yeah. Yeah. And then most of the time, I think I'm going to have other guests where the main point will be to like interview them on, you know, some area of their expertise, kind of like a lot of the good episodes you used to do. So, right. Anyway, the old podcast is dead. This is the new one. So. All right. Thanks for being my first guest, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.